OCO Taishu Shidana Lai. I'm Jay Winter Knife Wolf, and this is the American Indian Indigenous Peoples Truce Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio, podcasts, and everywhere else. I'll be right back to introduce my guest for today. Don't go away. Great and eternal mystery of life, creator of all things, I give thanks for the beauty you put in every single one of your creations. I am grateful that you did not fail in making every stone, plant, creature, and human being a perfect and whole part of the sacred hoop. I am grateful that you have allowed me to see the strength and beauty of all my relations. My humble request is that all of the children of the earth will learn to see the same perfection in themselves. May none of your human children doubt or question your wisdom, grace, and sense of wholeness in giving all of creation a right to be a living extension of your perfect love. All right, welcome back to the podcast, Jay Winter Nightwolf and Company. My guests today are two very, very, very close friends of mine. I've known them both for quite a few years. And we're going to start off with the lady first. Her name is Cynthia McKinney. Cynthia McKinney was the first American, no, African-American woman from Georgia to serve in the United States Congress. She was elected to the Congress in 1992 with a resume that included graduate work in international relations, Representative McKinney's background, fit her service on the Armed Forces and International Relations Committees, where she addressed human rights issues. And I can go on and on for another hour introducing her. But before we do that, I want to say welcome to the broadcast, Cynthia. How are you? Well, I'm doing fine under the circumstances. Of course, you know, I'm down here in Georgia and uh, left one lockdown and entered another lockdown and (laughs) was over in China when the coronavirus erupted over there and came back over here to face lockdown. And I can't go back to my job because they're on lockdown. It's it's just um, a crazy time right now. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you so much for being with us today, Cynthia. I've been wanting to introduce you to my next guest anyway. My next guest is, um, he's my brother and my real, real close friend. 
His name is Vincent Blackhawk Ahmad. He's a filmmaker. He's the producer and director of The Ghost Riders, a feature documentary film about the sacred ride, horse ride to Wounded Knee, done by the youth of the Lakota Nation. This film has won many awards, including Best Documentary at numerous film festivals, American Indian Festival, Imaginative, and many, many others. And I, I'm so grateful that I've actually had an opportunity to catch up with him because he's such a busy brother. Vince, you're also working on a new film, right? It's called Winter Thunder, correct? Correct. Give a shout out to you, Nightwolf, my, my brother and partner in crime. And uh, <laughs> you also say hi to uh, Cynthia. And just thank you for uh, you know, having me on. Always uh, love to be in your presence, whether it's in person or you know, in your radio space. But uh, it's always it's always good energy, and I always feel I always feel uplifted and, and a bit more stronger after uh, spending time with you. Absolutely, you know I I just want to let everybody know how close of a friend Vincent is to me. The very first time I had cancer, of the four times that I had cancer, my healing started in a sweat lodge in New York, and. Uh, Vincent came in. I didn't know who he was. He came in. He prayed with us. And and from that point on, we have become very close friends and brothers. Uh, when I went out to South Dakota about 15 years ago to take the food and toys and medical supplies and furniture and everything else that I collected out here in Washington, D.C., to uh, the reservations in South Dakota, uh, the reservation the three affiliated tribes in North Dakota and down to the uh, San Carlos Apaches in Globe, Arizona and the uh, elders of the Cheyenne Arapaho people in Oklahoma. When I got to South Dakota, I was so surprised to see my brother was there also bringing aid to the poorest people in America. That's how far back it goes. So Vince, I don't know whether I I ever thank you for doing that, but I'm going to do it right now, bro. Thank you so much, man. And the same to you. Aho, brother. Yeah. I would like to talk about two things today. I would first of all like to talk about this COVID-19 and uh, the effect that it has on communities in the Americas, especially the black community and the Native American community. So... Cynthia, if you want to start talking about the COVID-19 thing, please do. I can start uh, by saying that I sponsored, or I should say I led, a fact-finding mission to China at the end of December. So I was at China from the end of December to approximately mid-January. And the purpose of our trip, we ended up being able to take 18 U.S. citizens with two U.K. citizens who were interested in understanding all of the anti-China propaganda that was happening at that time. Remember, this is Mm pre-COVID. So at that time, the anti-China propaganda centered on Chinese authorities treatment of the Muslim 
population in that country. Right. So the purpose of our trip was to travel all over China, staying in Muslim communities, eventually ending up in the Muslim-majority province of Xinjiang, Mm -hmm. and uh, understanding how Muslims in China felt about being Muslims in China. Uh And I have to say that our uh, mission, our trip, was a successful one, and uh, we learned a lot along the way. What we didn't understand was that at the time that we were there traveling throughout China, that so too was the coronavirus, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. At, at that time, it was as yet unnamed un, uh, and uh, unknown. So um, that led me to uh, put together a book about the coronavirus and it's um, we're getting ready now for its publication. Okay, thank you so much. Vince, what, what is it that you have to say about this COVID-19, especially in Indian country? Well, I think we've all seen um, you know, the impact it's had on them and, and uh, a lot of that being on, with everything being shut down, just a lot of the you know, supplies that they rely on were cut off. Mm-hmm. And um, I sent out some messages to some people about, unfortunately, I was so busy with, you know, just all my stuff at home. I couldn't, I would have loved to have participated in going out and taking things because, you know, me, I, one of the things I really try to do. But in this situation, I just couldn't trust with just everything being shut down, you know, just kind of everybody at home. Uh-huh. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we saw the impact uh, that it had on, on, on just them now, not only having to deal with the health issue, but also the supplies, you know, even things as simple as water. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I know, I know there were some, some really good groups that stepped up and, and helped out and, I'm a big fan of, and, and I've got a chance to meet him, but I'm a big fan of uh, Jason Momoa. Right. And I know he was he was sending stuff out because he's got a partnership with a, uh, a company that does water. He's really big on getting rid of single-use plastics. He's got a company that does water, but they don't use plastic. And so I know that they had uh, helped out. So, so that was great. As far as me personally... For me, all, all we experienced was just, you know, yeah, everything's shutting down, everybody's working from home, and, and my biggest challenge was um, trying to figure out, you know, second and, and fourth grade math, because <laughs> I was homeschooling <laughs> my boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can talk a long time about COVID-19, but I want to talk about the other pandemic that has raised this ugly head since... Uh, Donald Trump uh, slithered his way into the presidency, uh, and that's racism. That's 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 that police brutality on black people, especially black men. Uh, the Black Lives Matter thing, you know, all of those things that have been at the forefront of what what's going on in America and what has been going on in America for over five hundred years, Cynthia your take on this Black Lives Matter 
and everything else that is encompassed in what's happening today. Now, I live in the Washington metropolitan area, Washington, D.C., and I've seen it on television, but I've also I've seen it close up once or twice. This thing about uh, racial disparities, the, uh, the whole thing about all of a sudden now white people are re- beginning to see how we as a people of color uh, I'm native, Cynthia, you're black. Vincent is, is native, but we're all in this same boat together, you know, and I'm so tired of hearing uh, we're all in this together. Well, we've been in this together ever since the Europeans arrived on the shores of the Western Hemisphere and invaded us. We've been in this together. What's your take on it, Cynthia? I'm just going to let you talk for a little bit. Well, I think um, it's... <laughs> sort of important to to understand that there's more to the situation than meets the eye. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that based on the research that I've done about the coronavirus, COVID-19, the situation as it's unfolding, what I experienced from Uh, being over there in China. I think the bottom line is not just about health disparities because, of course, we know that there's disparity in every walk of life. Mm -hmm. So it's not just health, education, it's income, it's imprisonment, it's it's medicine, it's you name it. Mm -hmm. If it has to do with life, there's a disparity. Right. And that is a historic, longstanding uh, situation, but now we've entered into some new phenomenon. And what I would say is that the battlefield has now moved to the bloodstream. We had in the project for a new American century, a document rebuilding America's defenses on page 60, where the authors talked about genetically specific bioweapons. And so at some point, we must understand that the realm of the battlefield has changed now. Mm -hmm. And the South Africans were trying to get a black bomb. The Israelis trying to get a brown bomb against Arabs and Palestinians. The Americans have always thought the demise of its black population and American and, Indians and American Indians. Absolutely. That's right. And so now of course that possibility exists in a very invisible form. So I think uh, we need to understand all aspects of the battlefield and prepare ourselves. At least we should be able to defend ourselves, but how are you going to defend yourself against something that's been designed to kill certain people? Mm-hmm. Vincent, what's your feeling on that? It's very interesting. I've read some, some stuff in that regard and, and definitely have heard, you know, I think we've all kind of heard these stories of different genetically altered and made things to wipe out certain peoples and, and I'm not in that 
Right. I don't like to talk, you know, without really having like a real strong foundation of where the uh, information is coming from. But I've definitely heard yeah. you know, all that stuff. And it doesn't surprise me. Oh, so why don't you let me tell you the foundation? Before you do that, let me just mention this to Vincent. The smallpox epidemic. That was also engineered. We didn't have that here until them white folks came from uh, Europe. With exactly. it. They use it as a, as a bioweapon on us. Oh, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Right. Okay, Cynthia, go ahead. So basically, in uh, the pursuit of, the, of information about this specific chapter that I've written for the book, the name of the book is When China Sneezes. From the coronavirus lockdown to the global political economic implications. And the chapter that I wrote is on genocide, uh, hybrid warfare, biological warfare, and then the specific use of uh, these tactics in uh, pursuit of genocide. And the question that I was trying to answer is, is it possible to target particular groups based on the project for a new, new American centuries sort of um, wish in its book, uh, Rebuilding America's Defenses? And so basically what I did First of all, tracing the history of the United States in terms of eugenics and the desire of very influential people in the United States to one, on one hand, create a master super race, and two, on the other hand, eliminate reproduction by those who were not of that master race. So that's sort of the, the double-edged sword of eugenics in the United States. And from the, Uni the, the, the United States, then this idea of eugenics spread to the rest of the world. It became quite fashionable. And uh, because of the Rockefeller money and other money that was put behind it, political candidates who believed in eugenics won their campaigns because their campaign coffers were filled with cash. Uh, university professors were published in journals uh, because they, that was a old Quran for the day. And then um, this idea spread into Europe and other places because it was fashionable in the United States and it was backed by solid cash. Okay, so I go from there to looking at what specifically was the level four bio lab in Wuhan uh, built to investigate. Well, two of the things that the Chinese wanted to investigate were HIV and Ebola. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we all have understood the suspicious origins of both. Right. And so, therefore, I think the last thing that the U.S. deep state wanted was the Chinese mucking around trying to find out what what exactly 
HIV and Ebola were. That's one aspect. But then what the Chinese were very, very interested in was why is it that when SARS came out, they were the only ones dying? Now, that was the question that they asked because it didn't really matter uh, where you were in the world, if you were East Asian, then you were more likely to die from SARS than anybody else. And so from that simple question, they began pursuit of the answer. And they went from SARS to MERS. There was H1N1 that was interesting in that it basically attacked Latino the Latino community. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they began to do all this research and then finally came SARS novel coronavirus two. Then what they did was they looked at the mechanism by which this particular virus attached to the human cell. And what they found was that that particular mechanism prevails in East Asian people. That's right. That's right. Next, it prevails in South Asian people. Next, it prevails in African-descended people. Mm -hmm. And very last, with almost none of it present in European people. Right, right. Cynthia, thank you. That's that's really interesting information. And yeah, that's you're sort of peeling back these layers which need to be exposed. I, I thank you for your for your work in in sharing this. Cynthia, we're gonna we're gonna go to a quick break and come right back, okay? This is the American Indian Indigenous People's Truce, Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio, podcasts, and everywhere else. Don't go away.
All right, welcome back to the podcast, Jay Winter Nightwolf and Company. Shonda Buchanan, this is Cynthia McKinney, and Cynthia McKinney, just like you, Shonda, have been friends with me for quite a few years. Before you go, uh, Cynthia, your closing thoughts on this whole um, militarization of the streets in these in, in these major cities throughout the United States because uh, Donald Trump is just trying to show power that he don't have. Or Today, General Mattis came down on him and accused him of being unconstitutional in, his, in what he's trying to do, uh, trying to get the um, military involved in policing the streets of the United States, and that's unconstitutional because... All of the guys, it was to protect and preserve the Constitution of the United States and to have a president to want to militarize the streets of, of, of the United States totally goes against the Constitution because I'm going to tell you the truth. A lot of these guys that are serving now, including General Maddox and Jack Kelly and all these guys, they're saying, wait a minute, hell no. You want us to police our own people in the United States and and try to make it look like there's some kind of a takeover? There's no takeover. It's a peaceful protest. What are your thoughts on that, Cynthia? Well, um, just to uh, state for the record that the militarization of U.S. streets has taken place for a very long time. It initiated with the drug war, the so-called drug war in which the United States government was the biggest drug dealer on the planet. Mm-hmm. And the use to attack its own citizens was the uh, use of the drug war peeling back posse comitatus that prohibited this kind of militarization from taking place. But the police themselves looked like um, a scene from Iraq. Mm-hmm. So uh, we brought Iraq and all of the war crimes that were committed in Iraq. Well, we're bringing them home, and that's not a surprise either. Mm. So the entire scenario is quite shameful. But I would also like to caution folks that um, what we are seeing is an intelligence operation. It mm-hmm. is not a and um, attack on the rights of blacks to uh, particularly black men, but also black women are being attacked in this way by this militarized uh, police force that is trained in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the, 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 the fact that we've got this erosion of U.S. Constitution and civil liberties that has been taking place for a very long time. So we we really shouldn't be surprised at anything that we see because United States taxpayers have been financing this kind of behavior overseas. It's called color revolution. It was called Operation Gladio when it was being done in Europe. And so now Operation Gladio has been brought home. Mm, mm. That's something to think about. Anything else you want to add or you want to leave us with some closing thoughts tonight? Well, I would just say that there are so many shameful um, instances in U.S. history 
And this whole episode just joins that list. And so um, in addition to the battlefield now being a bloodstream, which is an important shift so that hybrid warfare has become normalized, biological warfare against our very essence has been normalized. Um, we need to understand that things are, that, that the, the ground is shifting underneath our feet as we are literally standing on it. And so things that, that we may have taken for granted that A was A and B is B, now A is B and, and B is Z. Right. So we have to understand that things are changing and we can't get hung uh, or I guess uh, maybe um, tied into past concepts, but we've got to be able to understand that these changes are taking place in real time. And so that maximum flexibility and adaptability is called upon if we're going to be able to survive and fight that which is happening. All right. And that's a good thought to leave us with. And that was Cynthia McKinney, former U.S. representative from the state of Georgia, the first African-American woman to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives from the state of Georgia. We'll be right back in a minute. We're going to continue this conversation with my, my other sister and friend, Shonda Buchanan. Don't go away. Welcome back to the podcast, Jay Winter Nightwolf, Justice for All. I'm talking to my good friend and my sister, Shonda Buchanan, who is a black American Indian. And she's, uh, she's allowed us to come into her space and talk to her about some very pressing issues. And one issue is this COVID-19 virus that... Um, has claimed the lives of so many people. Uh, I lost my sister to it two or three, two, three days ago. Um, and also the issue of Black Lives Matter, the racism that we have to deal with as being people of color. I don't care whether you're Black, Native American, uh, Latino, or whatever. In these United States, it's been an ongoing struggle to just survive as a person of color, and it appears to have come to a head where 
our young people are saying, we ain't taking this no more. So, you know, y'all got to do something. That's what they're saying. Y'all got to do something. So let me take you directly to my sister. Shana Buchanan. Shana, how are you? You know, in light of everything, I'm doing okay. I'm here. Absolutely. Just for the sake of my audience that don't know you, how do you identify? I identify as Black Indian. That's my identity, um, African-American with American Indian roots and heritage. Uh, and I know from my DNA that I also have uh, Scottish ancestry so um, and a couple of other things in there, too. So that's okay. how I identify as a Black Indian. Well, all that stuff came together to produce you, such a beautiful sister. <laughs> my mom and my dad, uh, and all yeah. my ancestors, I hope. There you go. Shonda, this this whole thing with this corona, uh, COVID-19 mess has devastated not just us here in the United States, but in many places all over the world. Uh, some people are saying, well, it's uh, the creator trying to get our attention or, you know, it's time for a change now. Minister Farrakhan said there's a shift within the planet, in the universe. What's your thoughts on it? I'm going to speak from, this is the first interview that I've actually done. People, a couple of people have asked me to do interviews, and I'm just inundated with the feeling of trauma, right? The feeling of um, having, having the sense that we, as, as humans on this planet, have overconsumed what, has, what could freely be something that's shared or freely given to us. You know, in a way that um, Mother Nature felt, and I'm I'm not in the conspiracy theory of I, I don't I don't believe in the conspiracy theory that the virus was created. I'm not on that camp. I'm in the camp that Mother Nature needed a purge, and this is a terrible result of what you know what Mother Nature needed. You know what Ma what Mama Earth needed. You know with regards to how we have. Um, kind of sprawled out, overutilized resources, polluted our airways. Corporations, you know, are trying to <clears throat> put pipes, you know, on sacred Indian land and, um, you know, oil drilling in the Arctic. And, you know, for, for a long time, so I, I'm a professor as well, English professor and, uh, and a writer, author of Black Indian. And I'm always bringing the sensibility of um, to my classes and to my writing. You know, what is our place as humans? You know, in the in relation to the other mammals. And my students will sometimes look at me and they're like, "What?" And I'm like, "We're mammals with opposable thumbs." You know, but we are a part of a species. We are a part of a group, a chain link to the rest of. You know the rest of the four legged and the, as we call them, the the creepy crawlies and the winged ones, right? And so we belong in the chain of 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 um of creation. Mm -hmm. So so why is it that we feel, or not even we, but the people who are over consuming or overproducing certain things? You know why why can't we stop? Why can't we see that money isn't everything? And I think the result of the, the, those folks who are um, the corporations who, uh, you know, have um, just kind of disregarded that, that, that knowing, you know, that knowing um, 
a part of it is, you know, and I'm so sorry, a part of it is COVID. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's, that's the camp that I, that I lean in. I lean in the camp of, you know, um, when I see, when I see the, the hummingbirds coming back, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, when I see the mon- monkeys in the street, streets and bears and lions and, you know, and just like the sky, the earth. So Los Angeles, where I live, um, the, the third week of COVID, we have the best weather in the world. Like our skies, no smog, no, I mean, you know, it's, it's documented. So it's like Mama Earth was like, I need a rest. I need mm-hmm. a break. And I hate that deaths are the result. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, getting further into the COVID uh, thing, um, I just lost my sister three days ago to COVID-19. Very sorry. Very sorry about that. Yeah. And um, I think the hardest, the hardest part of that is not just losing her, not being able to pick up the phone and talk to her. But because of what this COVID-19 has done, uh, they cannot embalm her. They had to cremate her. Oh, and, my gosh. And you know how we as Indian people and black people, you know, death is a celebration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we're not able to celebrate that, you know, with her. Homegoing, yeah. Yeah, with her presence there uh, in, in her physical form, even though she's no longer with us living and i think that 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 is hurting me more than anything you know i couldn't get a chance to visit her when she was sick because of the covid mm. thing i couldn't get a chance to touch her hand mm. or put my hand up underneath mm. the back of her head and tell her how much i loved her mm. and mm. that that's really that's what's hurting me but um and even this too shall pass you know and imagine how many, so our death rate, we're, we've, we're over 100,000 in the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, so that would be 100,000 families. Right. Including right. yours. Yes. Who could not hug, kiss, touch their loved ones, who mm-hmm. could not, and, and, and I don't know how it will happen with you, who could not mourn in the way that we've been taught to mourn. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, at this point, it's in the, it's in Creator's hands. So, right, Creator has never, never failed any of us, and I'm just right. depending on Creator to uh, carry us through this in such a way that we can heal from the loss mm-hmm. of her. Black Lives Matter, and to me, I didn't need a a murder of uh, George Floyd for me to know mm-hmm. that Black Lives Matter. Black mm-hmm. lives have always mattered because I grew up in Washington, D.C., and my family were um, one of the two Native families that grew up in D.C., and we grew up in a part of D.C. that was black. So all, my fr- mm-hmm. all our friends were black, you know, uh, the ones we played ball with, uh, the one we, ones we danced with and partied with, they were black. But that mm. didn't make a difference to us, you know. And to understand what they have had to deal with since they, their ancestors were brought here to the Western Hemisphere and made, into, yeah. made slaves. 
and uh, mm. and all of the fallout after that. You know, the four hundred years of lynching, and and it, it just makes it makes me sick to my stomach that yeah. this country has survived on bloodshed and racism. Right. What do you What are your feelings on that? You know, I, I see these young people all the time. They're they're protesting. They're not rioting. Yeah. They're protesting because they're sick and tired yeah. of being sick and tired right. of this mess. And one more thing, you know, I. I think when they integrated schools back in the 50s, it probably was the beginning of the downfall of a lot of racial uh, white supremacy and stuff like that. Because little black kids, little Indian kids, little white kids were going to school together. And they couldn't help but playing with each other. And as, and as children go, Children come in this world, they don't have any kind of prejudice against somebody because of the color of their skin. You know, that's something that's taught yeah. to them. So Angela Davis says radical simply means grasping things at the root, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that these protests that are happening now and have been happening for the last five years, you know, since Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. are attempts to grasp at the roots of many ills in our society, racism, discrimination, prejudice, uh, ostracization, covert, overt racism, the things that had been practiced covertly in the South, you know, for Mm -hmm. many years, Mm -hmm. and and, and then rather overtly in the South and then covertly in the North and in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so I, I really think that we are this moment in history, we are attempting to grasp racism at the root. And I have to say, I want to speak from a couple of different perspectives. I want to just, I want to look at history and how the first 20 and odd slaves came to this country. It, it, and, and forgive me for those who say that the first black people actually arrived from the 15, arrived in North America, Central and North America from the 1500s on. The history that I'm talking about is 1619. And we are still in the cycle of celebrating those first 20 slaves that came here, right? 16, they came in August of 1619. So we still have until August 2020 to celebrate and acknowledge those ancestors who came. But when those first Angolans came to the shores of Jamestown, they were they were indentured servants, mm-hmm. like uh, not necessarily slaves, and, and in fact they were enslaved. We have to look at our language, right? That's right. They, they weren't slaves; they were enslaved. So they were Angolans who were enslaved. But when mm-hmm. they got off that ship, they could be baptized out of slavery. That's what the laws in this country looked like, and that's what it felt like to. They were equal to white indentured servants mm-hmm. until. Until they realized that the, the, the colonizers, the settlers, those who were growing tobacco and cotton and who tried to enslave the American Indians on their plantations in the 1600s, 1700s, and the American Indians, the Native Americans, indigenous people, first peoples were running away back to, back to their home, you know, their tribe, their nations or to some other tribe, you know, other nations, the whole Powhatan nation, mm-hmm. you know, were fighting the, the encroachment. But when the three indentured servants who ran away, one 
a European guy and two black guys ran away, escaped a, a plantation in the mid 1700s. And when they were caught, the sentence for the white guy was, you have to serve another, and I can't remember how many years, maybe another five years on your indentured servitude. And for the two black men, it was, you have to serve the, the rest of your sentence, your natural born life. Mm-hmm. That is when in permanent enslavement and the, the mental degradation and that cultural imagination of, mm-hmm. of black people being slaves and less than in this country began. So, so we have to look at that historical context and peel back what that means, you know, for, for the generations that have followed. So mm-hmm. we have attempted to, um, and we have, we, we, we own property. Um, there were free people of color. There were slaves who bought themselves out of slavery, bought their family members out of slavery at great cost. Um, mm-hmm. Tony Morrison writes about many of these, you know, um, incidents, and you know, throughout the the lexicon of her work, beloved specifically, we we have to look at how that the formation of black, the cultural imagination of of what black people represent in this country. This is the work, not only of us, because we have said. We have said this, and musicians have said this: "Free your mind, and the rest will follow." Yeah. Or, you know, black people, we have we we mentally chain ourselves. You know, we need to each one teach one. We need to uplift everyone, right? Mm-hmm. But it is the work of white people, and, it, and and we are so tired of of having to reinstill the sense that a black life has value. And I think the Black Lives Matter movement is indicative of that first, the first two men who had to serve their natural born lives. And we're still fighting that same battle. Mm -hmm. I'm so tired of it. I don't want to fight that battle. I want to fight the battle of we're all equal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can we all just be in this, in in, in the sense of industries, corporations, um, politics, education. If you do not see a black person, a POC, a person of color, at your table in the boardroom, if you do not see them as a director, executive directors, chief financial officers, there is a problem with how you are living your life in America. Mm-hmm. There is a problem. Yes. Let's go back to yeah. uh, historical accounts. Um, they tell us, well, they have been telling us about, you know, the first black people who came here were... Uh, enslaved in the 16 and 1700s, but if we go back in history, we will find that 50,000 years ago, Africans came here as free people. Uh, The Phoenicians, you know, of course, the same white guy will try to brainwash you and have you believe they were white sailors. They were not white sailors. They were black, seagoing merchants uh, that had set up international trade on the high seas long before there was even a thought of a white person being in the Western Hemisphere. And they came here because they they had heard stories. They wanted to see who were these people on the other side of this big body of water. And they didn't come here to take anything from us. They came here because 
they were inquisitive. And when they came mm-hmm. here, they found a warm and loving, welcoming people. Yeah. And so, you know, they went back and continued. As a matter of fact, certain tribal members of certain tribes on the East Coast even participated in, in international trade and traveled mm-hmm. with them on their big ships. Mm-hmm. So when slavery in, evolved here in the Americas, um, a lot of our tribal people were standing and watching on the shores of the Virginias and the Carolinas these mm-hmm. slave ships. And when they opened up the bottoms of their ships, they saw these beautiful, dark-skinned, black, majestic people in chains and shackles. And we knew who they were because they had been here before. Mm-hmm. And whenever any of them ran away from the slavers, the auction blocks and the plantations, the first instinct of the African was to go back to the water and try to find a vessel that would get them back home. However, there were no vessels. Right. And what did they do? They turned and ran into the forest. And who did they run into us? Us. Yeah. And, and we took yep. them in. We took them in. Because exactly. we knew that they were our brothers and sisters. Exactly. Um, the first moment of unity, the first moment of allies. Absolutely. I want to say a thing about the sense of uh, people of color helping people of color, that American, American Indians helping Africans, you know, and, and marrying them. Mm-hmm. That is another tradition that has happened um, even after the, the Indian Wars. What's that, the 1812 French-Indian Wars? Right. The, their, the uh, numbers of the, um, the, the American Indian nations in, those, uh, in that area the numbers of the men were so depleted that full-blood American Indian women started buying black men as slaves so they could marry them mm-hmm. and they could free them mm-hmm. and, and, and actually have, you know, have a, a, a family, you know, with, with, the, with the men. So those are moments of, of unity, which is another sense that I think Black Lives Matter, the movement mm-hmm. now is getting so... It's becoming history is reciprocal, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Here is a moment where people of color are under attack. We have, we do have white allies, abolitionists, yeah, you know, yeah. who are, who are recognizing now, it's like, this is wrong. You know, how, the, how these people, how, how African-Americans in this country are treated because of the color of their skin, um, the perpetuated um, sense of poverty and, um, and being lesser than, you know, so, so we do have these kinds of allies now, but it did begin, you know, it did begin with the first Africans getting off those ships. Yeah. And, and the first, you know, first people saying, you know what, we're going to take you, we're going to hide you, come live in our swamp, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Akahanic, the Palatan nation, uh, Chernakanadaway. You know, yeah. the Nottaways. You know, come mm-hmm. come and, and, and marry into our family. We adopt you as relatives, you know? Right, so. right. And and another great thing that um, a series of events was when General Tubman had her Underground Railroad. Every stop along the way going north yeah. was manned by Native American people. And Native people took them in when they were sick, 
got them well, fed them when they were hungry, and pushed them on north until they got to New York and Chief Skinnendor of the Oneida Nation uh, was an ally and a friend to uh, uh, General Tubman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 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 he would wait until there were fifty to two, maybe three, four hundred escapees there, and have his guides and warriors to take them into Canada for absolute freedom. And that's how black people got to Canada. Right. So we we've always right. we've always recognized that there was a connection by yeah. color, humanity, and blood. Yes. 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 Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And necessity. Oh, <laughs> and necessity definitely yes. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to say too for the, I just want to say thank you to the people who are out there marching in the streets and those activists and those moms and those dads and, you know, the youth and the elders who I've seen out there. And just, I want to say thank you because everyone has a way in which you can fight. Uh, for me, I'm a writer, you know, I'm working on a novel that deals with that black and Indian, you know, intersections mm-hmm. uh, before and after and on the trail of tears. Right. Yes. Um, I'm, so I'm looking at that novel. Uh, rather, I'm working on that novel. Um, you know, my book, Black Indian, talks about, you know, racism, intra-racism, and then also kind of finding your identity or yourself as a person of color or a mixed race person of color, you know, mm-hmm. in in America, too. But I have to say that we are fighting on so many fronts to just kind of to be considered um, just, you know, someone who has has a sense of value every day. You know, we walk outside as, as, a, as a black person, as a, as a darker skinned person in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's, a, it's like a small battle. It could be a slight and people call it a microaggression, you know, or, you know, someone says something that uh, to them is not ignorant to us. We're, we accept the words because it's like they don't know any better. And those people who are on the front lines now are fighting. It's like, you should know better. Mm-hmm. You need to know this. And I had a meeting um, with some writers the other day. And I was like, you know what? I'm just tired. And they said to me, they said, how are you? And I said, I cry every day. Mm-hmm. And it's a professional meeting. But I want people to know. It's like, I, as a black person, as a black Indian person in this country, this is what we feel. We cry every day. Yes. This is what is happening when we see images like this, when we know that we are out there fighting for our lives, fighting for our survival, fighting for equal treatment in 2020. I'm tired. I cry every day. Yeah. And, you know, I know George Floyd did not come out his house that day yeah. with no with, with not one inclination that he would end up the way he did. Yeah. And, um, no. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to say it. I'm, I'm so thankful for the George Floyds out there, but yep. I, my heart just breaks, aches, and cries every time I think of what he had to go through because that could have been me. Yeah. That could have yep. been, you know, one of my sons or one of my grandsons. Yeah, yeah. And um, and his little six-year-old daughter said, "My daddy uh, made a difference." My daddy changed the world. He changed the world. And the world will never be the same again. Yeah. You know, but it's incumbent upon everybody, you know, whether you're black, white, red, or yellow, 
it's incumbent upon all of us. We know the change that's needed. We see the change that's needed. And we need to be about making a change. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, James, I'm a writer, so I'm always quoting from, you know, my favorite writers. But James Baldwin is one of the fire next time. Everybody's been posting that. The fire, the fire, the fire next time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, how he used to just rip, you know, you know, the the larynx of of white broadcasters, (laughs) you know, (laughs) who tried to humble him. You know, and they would try to, you know, just say, oh, you're a black gay man in America. You must feel like, you know, like you were the, like the worst off, you know, ever. And he said, no, I hit the jackpot. Mm. He was like, I am a black man in this country and I have the chance to educate you, you know. And, mm-hmm. and so when I, I, so he said he has a quote that says to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious. Is to be in a rage almost all the time. Yes, because it, it's, a, it's, a, like. it's a great endangerment, you know. Yep. To people it is. like that, yeah. It is. It, it really is, and we we just wanted it. Something else that I've seen on social media, and I'm very grateful. Uh, a couple of people have tweeted. And they've said, um, "Dear white people, um, imagine what your black colleagues are going through. We are now zooming." We, you know, we're we're showing you our public face. Mm-hmm. Um, be be easy, and if we need a mental health day, let us take it. <laughs> let let us take that because so what is happening now? The succession of those images, the deaths that are still occurring, um, and the ones it, and the ones that never lot. and the ones that never got mentioned. Never got mentioned. You know, we we know about Brianna Taylor. We know about Ahmed. It, it can render you speechless. And I have to admit, I have, for my own mental health, as a, I'm, a, I'm a literary activist and as a writer, mm-hmm. I've had to shut down for a minute. Yeah. I've had to just kind of step back. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about what I want to write. And I know, I know what the direction that I want to take about how, how, how things need to change. And I keep coming back to the cultural imagination. Yes, and, and and that can be a prolific thing that we institute in all of our institutions, but in our school books, in our from preschool, kindergarten on up to college, mm-hmm. everyone needs to take a class. Kids need to be, babies need to be educated on what it means to be a person of color, a black person in America. Mm-hmm. That is how you change the cultural imagination in the indoctrination, which is how we know about Plymouth Rock, which is how we know about who won this quote unquote, the wild West. Wild mm-hmm. West is an imagination in the imaginary term. Exactly. Right? They have in, the winners have indoctrinated us with a, with a winner's uh, narrative and with a once upon a time story. We need to peel that back. And we need the cultural imagination to be to be to be strengthened, but to be our image to be inserted as valued people in this country. With honor, integrity, and truth. Yeah. yeah. Yes and yeah. Yeah. So Shonda, I was talking to um, one of the young brothers out here the other day, and uh, he said it, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of smart eloquently. He said, you know what, Uncle Night Wolf? I said, what's that? He said, white people now understand where we are. I said, what you mean? 
they can't go out and do anything either. They've been keeping us from doing stuff for centuries. And maybe they might realize what their ancestors did to our ancestors. I said, well, that could happen, then it may not happen. He said, well, I hope it does, because if it don't, I'm going to remind them every day, you were shut in just like we were. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, out, <laughs> of the yeah. out, out of the mouths of our young people, you know, you, yeah. could, you, could not, you couldn't get out and drive your car. You couldn't get out and go to see your white friends at their houses, could you? Nah. Uh-uh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, couldn't, you couldn't go out the house without a mask on your face. And I'm just listening to him, right? He says, I remember, yeah. he said, I remember the time that if you walked in the store with a mask on your face, even they drew a gun on you or called the police. He said, now they won't even let you in without a mask. <laughs> yeah. Actually, uh, a security guard did follow a black man out of a store, basically told a black man, this was three weeks ago, uh, and I can't remember the state or the city or state, but he, he followed that black man out of the store was telling him, you need to remove your mask. And the black man was like, uh, COVID is happening. I'm not removing my mask. And so he basically was like, hey, everybody, uh, the security guard is following me out of the store. I, you know, have a mask on to be safe, you know, to, um, to not spread anything. And so it's like, huh, okay. So how is it that, that he didn't even know that this black man is trying to save, save him uh-huh. from his, quote unquote, his own, you know, germs? Yeah. How, how do you not know that? In his mind, it was that oh, black man with a mask on potentially could rob us. Oh god! So they and, don't. They don't. You, they, they, <laughs> no, they they don't even know. And the guy, your young your young fellow, I'm I'm so glad that he is thinking critically mm-hmm. about you know about all of us being shut in, all of us being hemmed in, and unable to to move in society in the in, in our quote-unquote freeness, right? You can't go to a restaurant. You can't. I love that he is thinking mm-hmm. along those lines because, yes, this is what the civil rights movement was fought for, right? This is what we have experienced for many times not being able to go into sundown towns, yeah. you know, or, mm-hmm. or stay in a sundown town after dark or you could be jailed or lynched or killed. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've experienced this on so many levels. And there's some places in America still. <laughs> Go back to Trayvon Martin. Yeah. Where if you are a person of color in a, in a white community, mm-hmm. you, you could have a problem. You could, you could be followed. Go back to Ahmad in, in Georgia. Yeah, Ahmad in Georgia. And that oh, was, that was mm-hmm. what happened a month or two months ago. Uh, no one had uh, been arrested for it, and now they've been arrested. An- another piece of uh, fairly recent history, I think that a lot of my friends and colleagues started talking about in the late 80s, early 90s, mid-90s, was that the police force that we had then in the 90s, those were the grandchildren of the white police officers in South Central LA, in Chicago, in, in Georgia. Uh-huh. Uh, those were pol- the grandchildren of racist police officers that were recruited to handle black migration. Yes. Go and, and catch, and, go and find my slaves yes. and bring them back. Yes. yes. Right. Uh-huh. And so, the, and there is the perpetuation of the, the mentality of racial bigotry Mm-hmm. in police officers who were supposed to protect and serve. 
And so we now we all know that there are secret um, uh, so uh, fraternities within police forces, right? We all know this. Yeah. So, so those who those racist police officers forget. I know not all of them are racist. I know we've got good police officers out there, but there are those who who came from the KKK seed and perpetuated that in their kids, and those kids got perpetuated that. Right. So here again, we're living with something that we that we inherited. It's it's almost like. Uh, those who um, set set up, uh, I guess, going back to systematic racism, right? Mm-hmm. Those who set up those systems knew the fetters, knew the cages, knew like how many prisons we needed because this is how many black men were and, and women were going to be caught and, and incarcerated, right? So there's that a sense of some insidious um, something behind the scenes. We can taste it and feel it and smell it's, it. It's always who's it's, perpetuating it. It's always been about making money with them, and now Absolutely. if you want to make some money out of the misery, buy stocks yeah. in prisons. Right, yeah, right, know. right, and yeah. and now grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, I really appreciate you having me on the show to talk about it. It was it's so hard, and I just thought I was going to cry my way through it because. I'm, I, as a as a black Indian woman, as a and I identify, I'm black black. I'm Indian Indian. You know, I identify as both of these. But I know mm. what people see visibly. They see me at powwows, and visibly they see me at you know white meetings, and you know they they say black woman in America, and I'm fine with that. I'm fine with it. But I, I just feel like I'm I'm so exhausted being a poet and an activist. And I, and I can't, I cannot, uh-huh. like, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have the option of being quiet and being silent. I don't have the option or the luxury of escaping um, into a ball of silence or a ball of tears. Absolutely. You know, I am, mm-hmm. um, I am, I am, I am now, I'm coming out with a couple of things that I know, <laughs> um, well, that Shonda, I, I know I need to say. Shonda, I am. So grateful, first Thank of you. all, for you being my friend and being my sister and my ally. And I'm, I'm so grateful for you taking time out to talk to me this evening. And I would like to, at some point soon, continue this conversation uh, with yeah. you for, the, for my podcast. And uh, some of the people that I wanted to be on today, they had other things that they were doing. And uh, S- Cynthia McKinney would really like to talk to you. Thank you so much, uh, my thank dear. Thank you, thank you. You know, and have uh, a great evening. I I really appreciate this, and keep doing what you're doing, Jay. Thank you. And I'll leave you with this: I love you. You're my sister forever. Love you so much. Same okay. here. Same right. here. Blessings to you and your family. Thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Take care. Okay. Right. Bye bye. And that was Shonda Buchanan, a black American Indian woman who is a professor of English, an author, a great person, one with so much in-depth insight into so much. And I will bring her back again. I'm Jay Winner Nightwolf, and this has been the American Indian Indigenous Peoples Troops 
Justice for All, the most dangerous show on podcasts and radio and everywhere else. I'll talk to you again real soon. Danada, goai, wado. to live in peace with the Indian, he can live in peace. There need be no trouble. Treat all men alike. Give them all the same law. Give them all an even chance to live and grow. You might as well expect the rivers to run backward, as that any man who was born a free man should be contented when penned up and denied liberty to go where he pleases. We only ask an even chance to live as other men live. We ask to be recognized as men. Let me be a free man, free to travel, free to stop, free to work, free to choose my own teachers, free to follow the religion of my fathers, free to think and talk and act for myself.